Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto, Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. (laughs) 
This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. He felt that wine spurred conversation, and he once wrote that if a bunch of people had drunk some hard liquor, some cocktails, and then they had dinner, and then the, another group of people had drunk some wine and had dinner, that the quality of the two conversations would have been different. And I think that that's true. Ann Fadiman is an essayist, reporter, and author of four books, most recently The Wine Lover's Daughter. This was a memoir about her father, Clifton Fadiman, who was in his time a famous literary critic, a radio game show host, and editor. He was born in 1904, he grew up in Brooklyn, and spent his life devoted to the love of wine and dislike for bubblegum, lunch counters, and self-help books. Before we get to wine in her memoir, we're headed to the Lower East Side of New York City, where Mill Street's Catherine Smart meets 85-year-old Ray Alvarez. He's the founder of Ray's Candy Store, the only 24-hour ice cream shop in town. I'm standing outside of Ray's Candy. It's about 7 p.m., and I'm going to go inside, and I'm going to chat with Ray, and we're going to find out a little bit about what it's like to run the shop. Oh, I can see him through the window now. Hi, Ray. (laughs) We've invited Catherine Smart to the studio to describe her trip to Ray's. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. Uh, Tell me about Ray Alvarez. He's 85 years old, lives in New York, and he's been running Ray's candy store since a very long time ago in the early 70s. Uh, Yes, Ray Alvarez is quite the character. Uh, If you live in the East Village, you know Ray and Ray knows you because he's been running this 24-hour candy shop for 42 years. So anyone in town who needs a a sweet fix any time of day knows Ray, and that includes politicians and homeless people and little kids. He's kind of a friend to everybody. I, I actually lived for three days on 4th and Avenue B in 1972, uh, it was a pretty dangerous yeah. neighborhood. You just time. missed Ray because it was 1974 that he arrived there. What has remained the same is this candy store is kind of like a community center. As you know, keeping a place open in New York City is not easy, let alone a 24-hour spot. And that, you know, this place has existed because of Ray's crazy work ethic, his love for the community, and how much his neighbors seem to love him. So, so what's a candy store? He actually serves food too, right? It's not just candy. Yes, and I should back up, Chris, because when you picture a candy store, I guarantee you you're not picturing Ray's. So it's kind of a gritty bodega. It's got these faded posters from the 90s of, like, Columbo frozen yogurt and these grease-stained paper plates marked in Sharpie. But he's known for his beignets, for his deep-fried Oreos, his ice cream cones, and he also serves, like, French fries and chicken fingers. So whatever your craving is, you'll find it at Ray's. So tell me about Ray. What, why is he a cool guy? So Ray has a pretty incredible life story. He was born in a city called Tabriz, which he describes as a cold mountain town in Iran. And he had a pretty tough start. His mom died when he was a baby. His dad seems like not a very nice guy who had no interest in him. So he actually joined the Iranian Navy when he was 15 years old. And that worked out for a while. He saw the world. But I guess the living conditions were not too great on these naval ships. And when he docked outside just off the coast of Virginia, he looked out and saw these green rolling hills, and he fell in love. And then one day when a guard was smoking a cigarette, he literally jumped ship. Here's Ray. Yes, I I jumped off the ship. Uh, That was 1964. And uh, I swam uh, 15 minutes, and uh, I ended up in the mud. And I ended up the train station. And uh, I didn't know where the train goes. I thought I could just go. 
I want to get out of that. According to, to his testimony, he jumped ship, he swam to the shore of Virginia. He found the train station and took the first train out of there, which brought him to Miami. So he ends up in Miami doing what? So in Miami, he is doing pretty well. He works as a coffee roaster, but he eventually makes his way up to New York City. And, you know, like most people who just show up in New York City with big dreams, he starts knocking on the doors of every bar and every restaurant he can find. He washes windows in a pizzeria. He even does a stint at the Rockefeller Center. And you know who was my customer? Johnny Carson. All those big shots from the NBC. So he gets to New York. How does he actually start his own business? I mean, how did he start the candy store? Sure. So he had been saving money pretty steadily from all these odd jobs. He actually had $33,000 in the bank. Uh, And he was having a beer with his buddy one day, and he sort of confessed his lifelong dream of opening a restaurant. And his buddy, Papo, who owned an Italian restaurant, said, you don't want that. It's nothing but headaches. People don't shop for work. But you know what? There's a candy shop down the street that's for sale, and I think you should go after it. So this ended up being a long, drawn-out negotiation. Ray had to fork over literally every penny that he had, but he was able to finally purchase this candy shop. But once it was his shop, he decided, I want this place open 24 hours a day, and I want to be the one guy that runs it. So for the first 40 years, Chris, he literally ran this place by himself. He got one or two hours of sleep a day, just sleeping on the floor of this candy shop. He now has an apartment upstairs, but he spends most of his time just really taking these little naps in the back of the shop. I used to lay down, um, I still do. Five o'clock in the morning, I lay down there. I listen to BBC London. <laughs> and six o'clock sharp, I get up and I fill up the ice cream machines. So until he was 82, he was the, really the sole employee of the place? I mean, I think people came and go. But by all neighborhood accounts, it's pretty much always Ray who's there. And, and I think, Chris, I think what's really kind of interesting about this place is You know, if you haven't lived somewhere like New York City, it can kind of just seem like this big, overwhelming place full of faceless people, transients, go-getters, everyone doing their own thing. But it's made up of neighborhoods. And the fact that he's been able to keep it open through all the changes and all the generations of people just really speaks to his influence on the community. And he is quick to thank his neighbors because this has not been an easy road for Ray. Uh, He describes one winter where... It was very cold. Business was bad. And the the landlord decided to raise the rent and and he couldn't make rent. And his neighbors, some people donated money. Others loaned him money. He's always been one to pay people back. And so people are quick to help him. Um, Is there something he's particularly known for in terms of food? Uh, His beignets. He's very proud of them. And they are light and crisp. Of course, they're dusted with powdered sugar. They were were pretty tasty. So he's 85 and he's just, just starting to retire. I love this guy. No, no, no retire. I'm uh, planning to have my birthday party, uh, 100th birthday, 2033, January 1st. Catherine, thank you. I guess it's time for me to visit my old neighborhood. Yeah, I'll take you in for an ice cream cone or some beignets. Definitely the beignet. Thank you. That was most streets, Catherine Smart. Most Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts and Radio Public or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? 
I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, my name's Mike. I'm calling from South Jersey, and I'm very excited to talk to you both. So are we. And how can we help you? Okay, my question concerns uh, calorie and nutrition information for recipes and some cookbooks. Where do the authors get this information? Is there a nationally recognized underwriter's laboratory for testing recipes that they have to submit to? Well, first of all, I've never done that in my magazines because I I sort of agree with... It's too scary. Well, you know, Julia Child paraphrased the saying, moderation, all things, including moderation. The fact of the matter is cooking at home is inherently healthy if you... Start with raw ingredients. Yeah, you start with good ingredients, and almost all the salt in your diet comes from outside the home, like 95% in processed foods or supermarket foods. But in any case, to answer your question, it's just a piece of software. So the magazine offices around the country, they just type in the ingredients, the amounts, and it pops out all the nutritional information at the end of the recipe. But you can also, I mean, when I've quickly tried to figure out the calorie count on something just for my own edification, I've just typed in calories in cream, you know, and the amounts and figured it out sort of piecemeal by myself. If I'm going to go to the supermarket, I actually do look at the labels because I want to know what's in it. And and sometimes it looks like it should be fairly healthy and then it's got 500 calories in one little power bar. So I'm totally with you on that. But at home, I don't really need to know that. I mean, if I'm making cheesecake or brownies, I know it's got fat in it. So what is it that you would cook at home you'd want to understand the nutritional profile of? It's more so uh, things that, well, cheesecake, you mentioned that. Sure. I substituted Greek yogurt for a lot of the cream cheese. I was uh-huh. wondering, you know, can I just simply add up the differences in the calories, and that's what I think I'm saving myself by doing so? Mike, I'm wondering, are you, listen, it's very important to try to eat well and exercise and all that, but are you specifically trying to lose weight, or are you just trying to stay healthy? No, not now. I, I, did, I was 90 pounds heavier than I am now. Well, so, so. that's that's Okay, relevant. well, that's fair. And, yeah, I mean, and, Chris... and the first year, I didn't even look at calories. The second year, I did because it was tougher. No, it is tougher because you hit a plateau. One thing my wife actually told me, she read that if you eat dinner early, like at 5.30 or 6, versus at 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock, in other words, the amount of time that lapses between eating and going to sleep actually can change your weight profile fairly significantly. So it's also when you eat. It's not just how much you eat. So as you get older and you start eating dinner at 4.30 or 5, <laughs> you know, that's probably a good thing. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. I just say eat lots of fruits and vegetables and yeah. you're, you're going to be good. And have a light okay. dinner. Yeah. All right. Thanks okay, Mike. All, right, All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. You're on Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi. This is Judy Custer calling from Austin, Texas. I love Austin, Judy. How can we help you? I have a question about safely using or reusing cooking oil. Okay. I don't know how to safely reuse it, and it seems wasteful to pour a lot of oil into a pan for one use. So I want to know, do I need to strain it? Do I need to refrigerate it? Does it matter what kind of oil, how long it keeps, how many times I can reuse the same oil? I just really appreciate any tips and suggestions, and especially any safety advice. One thing is, uh, yeah, you want an oil that has a high smoke point, And these days, a lot of the oils are labeled as such. There's some that are formulated to have high smoke points, and also you can use as a salad oil, but you're looking for a high smoke point. Peanut oil, safflower oil. Grapeseed. Grapeseed oil. The second thing is don't heat it above its smoke point, which is, you know, usually for these oils around 400, wouldn't you say, Chris? The highest oils are 450 or 60. So don't let it get till it's smoking. What happens when an oil gets to its smoke point is 
the next time you reheat it, its smoke point is lower. It degrades. So try to really, really monitor the it's, temperature. It's like the first time you make me mad. And then the, the next the second time, time I mean, it's, like, it's, it's much easier to and really... forget about the third time. <laughs> right. And the other thing is, of course, yes, strain it. You don't want any little bits of anything in there. And I would say if you fried fish in there, yeah. I'm not sure I'd use it again for anything else except maybe fish the next night. Yeah, I agree. And then keep it in a cool, dark spot. I'll be honest with you. I'm wasteful. I only use it once. Chris, how many times do you think you can recycle it if you want? Well, it depends... As you said, did it smoke? The time I really deep-fried donuts, I used to make nutmeg donuts all the time, mm-hmm. and they were baking powder donuts, and uh, how many batches are you doing? So it just depends how much work you're putting the oil through. But if there's a lot of smoke going on and you've got a lot of stuff in the bottom of the pot, you can use it one more time, and then I just don't think it's worth it. Yeah. It also depends on if it's a delicate food, which can pick up the flavor if the oil is off. That's one thing. If you're yeah. frying chicken or something, it's not such a problem. Right. But donuts, you really don't want to get that off taste. No. You, know, you don't so. want your donuts tasting like fried chicken. No. Well, that's no, true. I don't know. That's sort of an interesting idea that we think about it. <laughs> well, they put waffles on fried chicken. Yeah, this so is true. It's not this too far true. off. So I think that's true. You also want to cook the same thing in it. You yeah. don't want to go from sweet to savory right. or whatever. Sure. So, yeah, strain it and get a big you know, half-gallon or gallon jug. And obviously use a good thermometer. Yeah, I've given up on the candy thermometers because they're hard to read and use. I just use an instant-read thermometer and dip it in and get it right. But 370 degrees. And the other thing is when you're frying, you don't really want to get the oil back up to 370. Most of the frying actually occurs about 320 to 340 because the temperature immediately goes down when the food goes in. But if you try to get the oil back up to 370, I think that it cooks the food too quickly and also I think the oil starts to go bad too. So you're really frying at about 330 or 340. I think actually if you have room in the refrigerator, probably refrigerating it would help it to last longer. But I would use it quickly. My refrigerator, we can hold two carrots, an apple, and a kombucha bottle. <laughs> and lots of salted butter. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Okay. So. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Judy. Thank you. This has been great. Okay. Take care. You too. This is Mo Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know the difference between Zatar and Harissa, just give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Gary from Chesterfield, New Jersey. Hi, Gary. What's your question? So more and more recipes seem to be using large amounts of fresh herbs like cilantro or mint, parsley, and... I'm a big fan, but I'm not a fan of all the washing, drying, plucking, and cutting (laughs) that all those herbs require. So I was hoping you'd give me a quick primer on what herbs I need to actually pluck all the leaves off of and which ones I could use stems and all. You're going to get two very different answers here. We'll let Sarah go first. No, no, no. I don't think he is. So let's start with cilantro. Every part of cilantro is usable, including the stems. So you don't really need to worry about it. So just, you know, chop it up. Not a problem. Parsley, what I do, I'm a very lazy cook. And what I do is I hold it by the stem sort of upside down. And then I take my knife and sort of shave off the leaves all around, off the stems, because I just cannot be bothered with pulling off the leaves. And that really speeds it up. And then there's still a few bigger stems in there you need to get rid of. Mint, I think you do need to take off. Thyme 
is the worst. Yeah, that's terrible. I hate thyme for that reason. I've now started just throwing whole sprigs in to flavor, and I roll them with a rolling pin first just to get more flavor out because I can't be bothered to take all those little leaves off. Right. It takes forever. Anyway, Chris, do you want to add? Now you want the real answer? The, the, uh, no. no. I, I, you disagree with what no, I said? No, no. I think those were good. I would just say, A, I never wash my herbs. Life is too short. I'm not going to do it. And it also, it's hard to get them really dry. Sarah's going like, oh, Lord, he's he's going over the edge. And secondly, for cilantro and parsley and dill, those are probably the three most often used, I just cut the stems off and leave the rest of it. And then I take the leaves attached to the thinner stems uh, or the branches, whatever they are, and I fold it in a U-shape in half. And then I cut across and chop them up very quickly. So... I always get rid of the big thick stems, but use everything else and don't wash it, and I'm done in about 20 seconds. And I'm just not going to pull leaves off. It's just not going to happen. No, I like the not washing approach. Well, but, the, 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 here, but here's the Ooh. thing. Here's the thing. Now, I don't know about your significant other, but my wife would go crazy. So you have to do it when she's not yeah. in the house. So some of the cases of salmonella <laughs> yeah. happen with, like, spinach. I, I know, and... I know. I'm risking everything for that. You can't <laughs> – you're going to get out the salad spinner and the whole thing, and then it's not really dry. And right. It gets all mushy when you go to chop not it. Not if you have a sharp knife and do it quickly. Oh, boy. I say wash, but I agree about the stems. The stems are fine. Even the parsley stems are fine. One thing is when you go buy it in the supermarket, try to get the thinnest stemmed parsley and cilantro you can, not the big old – you know, thick ones. That, that also okay. helps. So anyway, that's the lazy man's guide to preparing herbs. Right, Gary. Heard it from the horse's mouth. Thank you for Thanks, that question. Gary. Bye-bye. Thanks, yeah, bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my conversation with Ann Fadiman. She's author of The Wine Lover's Daughter, a memoir about her father, Clifton Fadiman, a famous literary critic and radio talk show host. Coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. 
It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Ann Fadiman is an essayist, reporter, also author of four books, most recently The Wine Lover's Daughter. This is a memoir about her father, Clifton Fadiman, a wine lover, radio game show host, and a man of many one-liners. So my first question is, is this book about trying to share something that your father loved so much even though you were not really able to? Yes, although I think that the operative verb while I was writing it was less share than understand. Now I find that I'm sharing it because the book is out. But my goal in writing it was simply to try to understand my father, who has been dead since 1999, a little bit better through trying to understand something that he loved so much, trying to figure out what it meant to him why it meant that to him, and whether it could ever mean anything like that to me. So let's just set up this by talking about your father. He grew up mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. He ended up as the book critic at The New Yorker at age 29, mm -hmm. uh, MC of a terrific radio show, Information Please, which I mm -hmm. should listen to this weekend. Um, oh, I hope you enjoyed it. I loved it. Uh, so, so just take us through just a quick uh, synopsis of his uh, CV. 
Sure. Well, my father, Clifton Fadiman, used to be really famous and isn't at all famous now. I don't think I could have written the book or would have wished to if he were currently as famous as he once was. I would have felt that I was standing on the shoulders of his fame and would have wondered whether people were reading my book because of my last name or because they actually thought it was a good book. But nobody's heard of him now, so I don't need to worry about that at all. So he was an essayist and critic and anthologist and editor and radio and TV host, born in 1904. He uh, grew up in Brooklyn before it was the least bit fashionable. His parents were both immigrants from Russia. He ended up going to Columbia, like many Jewish immigrants of his day, and pretty much left Brooklyn behind. And the two things I think that symbolized most powerfully the patrician, refined, cultivated world that he imagined across the East River in Manhattan were books and wine. And indeed, those two things ended up being um, what he loved most in all the world, not just symbols, but actual things that he loved. His feelings about both books and wine were almost erotic in their intensity. He spoke about them the way you'd speak about lovers. You wrote, I felt the faintest stirrings of desire. I could tell I was in the presence of beauty, something complicated, intelligent, smoky, subterranean, but I could only summon the fragile ghost of a response. Uh, and that's, that's a theme throughout the book the enormous pleasure your father got from wine and, and your attempts to uh, understand that. So at the end of the book or the en end of this period in your life, did you really understand what wine meant to him or was it still sort of a mystery? I think I do understand. I think that's what the process of writing the book was all about. It's possible to understand something you don't love if you understand someone who loved it. And I'm very interested in wine as a subject. I'm interested in the history of wine. I'm particularly interested in the now completely vanished era of wine that my father was a part of. He wrote essays about wine. He bought wine. He was a wine collector starting two years after the end of Prohibition. And that was the great era of French wines before American viticulture had really established itself. And of course, um, the small efforts that had, it had made before Prohibition were completely wiped out during those 14 years. So when he started collecting wine in 1935, it was all European, that was all there was. And those names of those great French wines are really magical to me. I heard them being discussed at the dinner table when I was growing up, and they really retain their magic even though I can't appreciate them. Well, he also wrote, uh, cork is one of the three inventions that have proved unequivocally beneficial to the human race. The other two are the wheel and Kleenex. Uh, 
um, yes. which I, I sort of like. It's wonderful to hear you read those, Chris. They are all from my father's essays on wine, and he wrote essays over the course of his very long life on any number of subjects, but some of the best are on wine, and they're all out of print. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to be able to quote him and bring that marvelously witty cosmopolitan voice to a few ears who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to hear it. Well, it's so interesting that he uh, was such a supporter and lover of culture and language and and study and books and history. I mean, uh, that comes down through this whole book. He started, you know, in Brooklyn. He wasn't rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, at Columbia, he was trying to become a professor there. Uh, and he was told, we have room for only one Jew, and we have chosen Mr. Trilling. You know, pretty hard times. Uh, yeah. And yet he was enormously successful. But but the notion of being educated was an important thing. I mean, maybe you could talk about that for a second. Sure. I think for him and the other kids, especially male kids in his cohort, education wasn't just an important thing. It was the thing. Education was the way out of Brooklyn. One of the things I learned when I was researching this book was that his older brother, who had gone to the same good public school in Brooklyn that he had gone to, Boys High, um, had been the vice president of something called the Correct English Club. And I thought this was so poignant. Imagine a bunch of sons of immigrant parents founding a club whose sole purpose was to make them not sound like their parents. And if they did learn to speak English correctly, perfect grammar, no immigrant accents, that was you know their first ticket to a better life. But it definitely meant leaving their roots behind. And my father sure did. Uh, now let's talk about his wine. He had a huge wine collection. Yes. Uh, when he started making money, he invested it. And, and also the prices for some of these wines were just incredibly low, even in today's dollars, right? Yeah. So when he first started buying wine in October of 1935, uh, he recorded that Aubryon, uh that he had purchased was $1.95 a bottle, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, $1.75 a bottle, Chambertin, $1.65 a bottle. And even if you factor in inflation, I think what you can conclude from that was back then the greatest wines in the world, um, including you know the very tiny, tiny group of Premier Cru Bordeaux, which now cost thousands of dollars a bottle, were available to anyone who was reasonably well off. There was just an enormous difference. Now you really have to be a multimillionaire to amass the kind of seller my father did in the 1930s. And in order to buy so many bottles, of course, he had to be doing well for the first time in his life. But in order to buy one bottle for a special occasion, you could be anybody. And that's one of the things that's changed. And that was one of the reasons that I enjoyed so much poking around this lost world of great wine. It was a world that anybody could choose to enter. And what happened to all those bottles? 
he he and my mother drank them. Oh, <laughs> uh, he didn't die until he was ninety five. So, uh, he ended up drinking a lot of bottles that he had initially thought would be inherited or would be sold. I mean, he, at first he'd planned to leave them to his children, but two out of three of us didn't really like wine, which was a grave disappointment for him. Um, and so then he said, oh, well, when I die, you should sell them. But by the time he was telling us to sell them, there really weren't that many left. At that point, there were I don't know, 100, 150 bottles, nothing like his early cellar, which, by the way, he didn't keep at home. Um, on his first day as a collector in 1935, I was astounded to discover, while I was research researching this book, he'd bought more than 900 bottles of wine. Well, he lived in New York. You could never fit 900 bottles of wine in a New hmm. York apartment. Uh, so he left them, as many people did, um, with the wine merchant from whom he bought them. Uh, but by the time he died, there, there, there was hardly anything left. And that was good, because who could possibly appreciate those bottles more than he? Did you ever, even now, get to the point where you had some enjoyment of wine? Are you still... I, I think you, you went to the Monell Institute or someplace where they, they, no, they, they did a workup. No, I work went up. to two taste scientists, uh, one at Cornell and one at the Pierce Lab at Yale. And I also took some genetic tests and discovered, well, first of all, that I have a lot of taste buds. I have a lot of papillae, which sounds great. You'd think, oh, she's such a sensitive taster, she'd love wine. But it means that wine, along with many other things, just tastes too damn strong to me. It doesn't taste bad exactly. Maybe it tastes a bit the way whiskey, undiluted, might taste to you. Um, and then I also discovered that I have a particular sensitivity to sour tastes and especially to bitter tastes. So the conclusion, which I, you know, I, I've, I've studied a little bit about taste and flavor and palate, but what you're really saying is, is genetically speaking, physiologically, you're not set up to enjoy wine, right? That's exactly right. Um, and that chapter uh, was excerpted in the New Yorker online, and I've gotten a ton of emails from people who said, oh my God, that's just how I feel. I drink wine right down the center of my tongue, just like you, so as not to taste it too much. Or, gosh, I never associated the fact that I don't really like wine with the fact that I don't like black coffee, um, but I don't like bitter tastes either. I've just been deluged by mail. So I think think that there are tons of people out there who have palates more or less like mine, and maybe they're feeling a little bit less guilty about it now. Is the one moment, uh, you, well, obviously there are millions, but one moment in particular that really sort of summarized this, the, the closeness you felt at the same time, there was something he loved that you didn't quite love? Sure. Um, I'm thinking about his 80th birthday, and he was at a luncheon meeting at the Book of the Month Club in New York, and he'd been a judge there for 40 years, and his friend had given him a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 1904. Of course, it was 1904 because that was my father's year of birth. And so he was essentially ingesting his exact contemporary, these two 80-year-olds, my dad and the bottle of wine. 
And it was a wine I'd never tasted, but I was very familiar with the look of uh, the beautiful label, which had been printed in a book called The Joys of Wine that my father had co-written with the friend who'd given him the bottle. And I, of course, was given some of that wine. Everyone at the table had a small glass. And I don't remember anything about what it tasted, but boy, do I remember the expression on my father's face. So we have to remember, it's the bottle is 80 years old, and although great Bordeaux's improve with age, at a certain point they peak, and 80 years is too long, which didn't mean it had turned to vinegar at all. But it, according to my father, was a kind of a, a ghost of its former self. But as he put it in his mouth... I just, it was as if the world stopped and Mm. he almost looked as if he was going to cry because he was so moved that this part of the history of the Western world was going inside him. And I'll never forget that moment. Mm. Certainly makes one appreciate (laughs) wine in more than one dimension after listening to that, that description. That was lovely. And, and, and I should say that that dimension is one I can fully appreciate. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book. I was saddled with a lot of wine knowledge from growing up with my father. Wine was constantly being mentioned. And it seemed to me that if I could understand what he loved about wine, I'd know him better. And I got even more interested in wine as a subject, the history of wine, the culture of wine, the beauty of wine. And that is something that I can share with my father even all these years after his death. That was Anne Fadiman, the author of The Wine Lover's Daughter. Dorothy Parker was famous for her one-liners, including, quote, if you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people he gave it to. But Clifton Fadiman was not far behind. He said, water and milk might be excellent drinks, but their charms are repetitive. God granted them swallowability and then rested. Let me leave you with a more poetic quote about his enjoyment of wine. A swallow that led a triple life, one in the mouth, one in the course of slipping down the gullet, and still another, a beautiful ghost, the moment afterward. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. I'm tired. I know you're going to ask. I'm tired of all these long ingredient lists, two-day recipes. I want something really simple, a dump and stir cookie perhaps, or maybe a chocolate cookie that's really easy to make. Well, have I got the (laughs) recipe for you. I bet you do. This is a triple chocolate almond cookie, which sounds really complicated. It's so simple. It's probably my favorite cookie we've ever made in the kitchen. It takes no time at all, and it's got the best flavor. It's like a mini molten chocolate cake on the inside with crunchy almonds and salt on the outside. It's just the perfect cookie. You know, Lynn, I've never heard you this enthusiastic. (laughs) You must really like this cookie. I really do. I'm going to win you over with this cookie, Chris. So it's a triple chocolate cookie. The first chocolate is chopped and melted milk chocolate. You want to make sure you buy a high-quality bar of milk chocolate here, not one of the sweeter ones that you'll find in the convenience store. The second type of chocolate is cocoa powder. That gets mixed together with all-purpose flour, sugar, and salt. And then the third chocolate is chopped semi-sweet chocolate. We add all of that together with vanilla and eggs, 
and almond butter. The almond butter here is the fat of this recipe. There's no butter or oil or shortening in this. It's just the almond butter. When you buy almond butter, it's separated. You want to make sure you stir it before you use it. So does this cookie dough have to sit in the refrigerator to firm up before you bake it? It does not. If you find that it is a little soft and you're having trouble forming it into one tablespoon balls, just let it sit for about five or ten minutes. That milk chocolate that's in there will solidify a little bit more and it'll make it more firm and easier to work with. So are the, the almonds in the title the almond butter or are there almonds on the outside too? Both. So there's almond butter in the cookie and then we use sliced toasted almonds on the outside. You just want to roll those little balls in the almonds and then flip them right side up, put them on a sheet tray, brush it with some egg white and sprinkle it with a flaky sea salt and definitely don't skip that step. It really adds an awesome pop of flavor. So we should have said triple chocolate almond sea salt cookies. (laughs) Exactly. We didn't have enough words in the title. Lynn, thank you. This is uh, your favorite cookie. I've never seen you this excited, so I'm going to have to rush home and try them. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can find our recipe for triple chocolate almond cookies at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions to my co-host, Sarah Moulton, right after this break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ashley calling from Durham, North Carolina. How are you? I was there for Thanksgiving about 30 years ago. So that's all I know about Durham. Lovely town. It's changed quite a bit. So have I. So (laughs) how can we help you? Um, I'm a global health researcher and lived for a long time in Nepal. And I know both of you know that there's not much better in the morning than milk that's fresh from the cow right outside. Um, And it wasn't until I moved back to the U.S. that I noticed how awful most of the milk tasted here. Just a lot of them taste like cardboard to me. And so my question is, what are the parts of milk's composition or the production or what parts of the cow's diet or lifestyle might contribute to the taste of milk? And as a consumer in the U.S., what can we use to really decipher the quality and possible taste of the milk that we're buying? The taste of the milk has a lot to do or everything to do with the diet. And my understanding is that in commercial milk production, you're not getting grazing. So they're not eating different kinds of grasses. They're, they're not eating fresh grass. Everything is already fermented. It's all about diet. I remember as a kid uh, in the winter, the milk was almost blue because the cows you know, hmm. weren't getting a great diet. In the summer, when they were grazing, there'd be a higher fat content and more flavor. So it's entirely diet-driven. So commercial production isn't going to give you organic or not, great taste, right, So farm, farmer's market is the way to go. Yeah, but of course, you know, there's been a lot of complaints about raw milk, and uh, FDA doesn't like it very much. It's this, I mean, I grew up on raw milk. I guess you are taking a chance, but uh, yeah, you have to go get it locally because any, any commercially produced milk just isn't going to have a lot of flavor. I mean, cream, for example, if you go to Europe and get cream, um, this is Sarah's Bailiwick. It'll be yellow. It won't be white. It'll have a lot of flavor, right? Yes, correct. Like in Italy or France. It's terrific. Don't you think this also has to do with pasteurization? You know, some milk is ultra-pasteurized, and it sort of tastes almost cooked. So it's lost that fresh milk taste. Yeah. I think ultra-pasteurization is almost 300 degrees, right? It's very high. Yeah. That'll also destroy any flavor. So we're not really helping you very much here, except saying go and take a (laughs) risk and buy from the farmer's market. Um, find the closest cow possible. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, it's also type of cows. Some cows, like a Jersey, for example, will have higher fat content milk than a Holstein, for example. I assume the commercial production, they breed the cows for production, not taste and fat content. Right. So. Yeah. When you guys cook where the milk or the dairy is really the star of the dish, do you really consider like where you're buying it or what kind you're getting? Is there anything to consider when we're cooking with it? If it's going to be essential in the dish, I would go get a local, if you can, product. And, and some of the co-ops and I think even Whole Foods might actually carry some of that stuff, Yeah, they too. do carry some yeah, of that. Yeah, so I would use that. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for calling. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Anita Porterfield from Bernie, Texas. Hi, Anita. How can we help you? I need help with making a sourdough starter. Oh, boy. That is a process. It well, is. Well, tell us what you've been doing and what's been going wrong. I tried Nancy Silverton's grape method, and it just smelled terrible. It smelled like a bar within about three or four days. <laughs> and then I went to Michael Schulman's cabbage method. Chris, are you a little confused? I thought that sourdough was made with flour and water. But they use fruit or vegetable to help start the yeast process. That's interesting. Beard on bread, he did that too. Really? Yeah, you can use potatoes, you can use grapes. It's a wild yeast spores. 
sometimes you get the wrong wild yeast. And as you said, it can turn bad and sour on you. It depends what you get. Huh. So That's interesting. I mean, I, the only recipe I'm familiar with is the King Arthur flour one. Right. Interestingly, they start with whole wheat flour for the first very round, and then you throw out half of it every day and add it white flour. And they also said it's very important that the water not be chlorinated. Oh. I was using filtered water. Um, I read the Tartine Bakery instructions that, from what I understand, they're the gold standard. But my goodness, it was three single-spaced pages. Yeah. And I do have a life, you know. I know. <laughs> That's the best comment I've heard all day. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time well, Wait, wait, wait. That. So let's back up. The reason you want to do this is because, because it's just a challenge and it's fun or what? I have celiac disease and I'm not supposed to eat gluten. But I have read that some people with celiac can eat sourdough bread. My husband eats gluten and I make all of his bread. Oh, I see. Okay. I would just try the King Arthur method. I would, too. I think the fruit is unnecessary from yeah. what I've heard. And one other thing about it that really bothers me is that you're supposed to throw a lot of it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently on the King Arthur flour website, they have some uses for that stuff you throw out. Like what? Oh, good. I don't know. Spackle? I, yeah, for... I, I didn't go there. <laughs> I didn't is go there. Is it building there. material? I mean, <laughs> I what do you know. do with it? The problem with starter, I did this once a long time ago, is you have to keep it going. Yeah. And I'm totally incapable as a human being of being consistent over a period of time and remembering to feed my starter. I mean, the other thing, you go on vacation, then we have to, like, have a babysitter for your starter. Yeah, along with the plants and the animals. I, yeah. I just cannot see myself no. doing that. No, no, I think it's something you should do once. You can say you did it. It's a fascinating experiment. And then you're done. Yeah. Okay. And I thank you so much. Thank you. We really appreciate the call. Okay. Best of luck. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. This is Most Jet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to turn a creamy, full-fat Greek yogurt into a quick dip. Start with a spoonful or two of tahini with the yogurt, a little bit of crushed red pepper flakes and coarse salt, and then swirl to blend. Then on top, we'd like to throw in some diced tomato, maybe some roasted red peppers, or even a handful of pomegranate seeds, which add great color. We serve this with all manner of crudite, or they're great with toasted pita chips. Dr. Aaron Carroll is professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Carroll about the risks of eating raw cookie dough. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, You know, for years, I've been on television doing cooking shows, and uh, I tend to eat things like cookie batter. <laughs> and we get all sorts of letters from people saying that's that's a terrible thing to do. It's a great health risk, et cetera, et cetera. And I always write back and say, well, I'm willing to take the risk. Am I actually right. taking a risk? Well, a risk, yes. You know, quantifiably, it's unbelievably small. And, and I think that that's what this has to come down to as, you, as with anything in life, you got to weigh the benefits and the risks. And the risk is so small here that if you're achieving a benefit, then it's probably okay. So, what is the risk, and how do you identify the, the size of the risk? So, for a long time, people were panicked about the eggs. Um, they thought that that if you ate raw eggs, that they were uncooked, that you had a significant risk of getting salmonella, which is, of course, a bacterial illness, which can lead to to diarrheal, you know, problems and even fever, and can cause some small amount of significant disease and even death. And look, in the past, there was 
more reason than there is today to be concerned about salmonella. There were, you know, a decent number of eggs and chickens that were infected. Um, the people were concerned. We didn't know as much about washing or preparing or cleaning the eggs before they, they got to us. But in the 1990s and in 2000s, the, the government and a number of states enacted some pretty good policies that significantly reduced the risk of getting salmonella from an egg. So much so that it really is pretty rare today. And when you really run the numbers, and they have done that, there have been some amazing studies that, that sort of run mathematical models to see what are your chances of getting sick. The chance of you coming into contact with an egg with salmonella is incredibly small, almost probably never going to happen. Even if you did come into contact with an egg with salmonella, the chance of you getting sick is really small. Even if you did get sick, the chance of you noticing it, that it would be an illness that you would, would bother you is very small. Even if you noticed it, the chance that you'd need to like go to a hospital is very small. And even if you went to a hospital, the chance that you get admitted or have to be treated in any way is very small. So is the salmonella, just so I understand, this is on the outside of the egg or is it yes. in the egg itself? No, it's actually on the outside right. of the egg. And then this is where most of the, another, again, where, where most of the concern comes from. It's not that it's in the egg and you can't get it. Most of the salmonella that's transmitted is it's on the shell of the egg and then it gets in your hands and then you right. transmit it into the food. So if you wash the eggs very well and you wash your hands even before you use them, you're reducing your risk. Can you get it to zero? Probably not. But if you committed to eating raw cookie dough every week for the rest of your life, the chances of you even coming into contact with salmonella would be near zero. Uh, and so this is one of those things that it exists as a risk, but you know, so does the chance of you being hit by a meteor. It's not going to happen probably. And that doesn't mean you should never go outside. I worry about the meteor all the time. I just want you. <laughs> That's why I never go outside. <laughs> so, well, I would encourage you to try to get over that. So I do have a question. So if you buy eggs, I used to actually have chickens. And then I also now get eggs from a local uh, farm. Mm -hmm. and, and those eggs clearly are not washed as well as commercial eggs. So you're encouraging me, if I'm not getting a, a commercial brand, to go out and really wash the eggs. I should wash all my eggs. How do I wash them? What do I do? Right. And I think it's it's important to, you know, hot water to wash the eggs, you know, as much as possible um, and try, you know, and actually, you know, even dry them off because sometimes with, with vigorous drying, you can actually remove quite a bit. When you're washing your hands, it's not often the soap. It's actually the vigorous rubbing underwater huh. that makes your hands clean. In the same way, you need to make sure you actually scrub an egg. You don't just sort of, you know, hold it under some water and hope for the best. I, I should point out that, you know, that that's only one half of the, the concern these days. The, the bigger concern and one that's getting more news has been that there's the potential for E. coli in certain flowers and that uh, they have been detected and people have been concerned. And of course, that can give you illness as well. Again, though, there's a very, 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 very small risk of you potentially getting an illness from eating things like raw cookie dough. But there's also for many people a huge amount of joy and benefit. And for most people, that joy and benefit will vastly, vastly outweigh the very minimal risk that could come from salmonella or E. coli. I have one last question. It's about the bacteria, salmonella and E. coli. How long do they exist? And if they're in a dry environment without any moisture, do they just die off? In other words, how can salmonella live on the outside of an egg for two or three weeks It'll still be an active culture by the time you open up that carton, let's say two weeks after the eggs were sold to the uh, supermarket? It's unlikely all of them will still be alive, but unfortunately, bacteria are pretty hardy. 
the risk becomes less as time goes on, but it is still there and it is greater than zero. And, uh, you know, for most of these types of studies and news stories, anything greater than zero is is time to panic. Um, but we won't ever get it to zero. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the danger of cookie dough is that great. <laughs> Dr. Eric Garrell, thank you so much. Thank you. Earlier in the show, we visited Ray's Candy Shop in New York. And of course, Ray Alvarez, the owner, is 85 years old. So the question is, why are folks amazed that someone in their 80s still show up for work? Well, compare that to someone in Bolivia. His name is Carmelo Flores Laura. He is supposedly 130 years old, and he's still a young man. He lives at 13,000 feet. He walks a lot. He chews coca leaves and says, quote, I don't eat noodles or rice, only barley. By the way, he gave up drinking as a young man. So the next time you're amazed that an 80-year-old shows up for work, remember Carmelo Flores Laura. He probably doesn't even run out of breath at 13,000 feet. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music, Hang Tan, by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.